millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How can today's book lover decide what to read? With a vast array of choices, what to choose? Professor Jim Flynn is a world-renowned expert on intelligence and IQ and believes that reading gives you a deeper understanding of the world. He's scoured the globe looking for the pearls by today's authors. You'll be surprised, delighted, you'll be outraged. But that's the magic of a book list. I'm Wallace Chapman, and in this 10-part series, I go in search of the best modern authors with Jim Flynn. Welcome to the new Torchlight List. This episode is a scattergun tour through Europe, starting with the great Italian novelist, literary critic, philosopher, semiotician and university professor Umberto Eco. Jim, now the name of the rose was an international bestseller. What do you think of Umberto Eco? I thought that his best actually was Name of the Rose. It's sort of patterned on Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. That is, you have the inquisitive priest who solves the mysteries and his sort of sidekick that he exercises his ideas on. I do have to warn you, though, that Eco loves to demonstrate his learning and that the model, <laughs> the, the novel's plot moves slowly, interrupted by long, long essays that interest me because I teach medieval theology on the nature of angels and the nature of sin and the nature of this and that. And you do have to be ready for this. I mean, you have to be ready for a wonderful novel punctuated by what may be an hour's reading uh, of medieval theology. And I thought that Eco tends to do this in most of his novels. There are some writers who seem to feel that they want to exhibit their erudition in a novel. And this is one, this is one example. <laughs> I'm afraid he does that. And we'll talk, of course, uh, also about Burgess, uh, who seems to become convinced that he wants to convince every reader that they're less intelligent and informed than he is. And he carries this to a terrible excess, you know, uh, in Earthly Powers, one of his best books. He peppers it with things like he wants to convey, you know, what a church is like. And he says, entering this church was like entering this church of St. Anne the Virgin in Switzerland and being impressed by the vertigo arrangements of the older pieces. Well, this is hardly what you would choose as an analogy <laughs> to get across what entering a church is like. Or if he enters New York City, he says, entering New York City was a matter of imagining pterodactyls Jumping from omni point to omni point, whatever an omni point is. Well, I've been to New York City and there's nothing like that, Tim, for me. Now, another Italian writer, but this one you don't really rate, Italo Calvino, even though he's been hailed as the greatest writer of the 20th century. I thought, so there's, there's a mismatch between your knowledge and someone else's. Yes, I thought that Calvino had done, uh, did a very good novel in his Path to the Spider's Nest. 
I mean, that's a novel that is really very well done. And, and that's about the Italian resistance that's to the That's about the Italian resistance, and his moral neutrality is good. That is, he makes you feel empathy with the collaborators as well as the people who are the liberators. And he doesn't paint them with any varnish. At one point, they sit down and they think, I wonder what communism would actually be like. It's never very much occurred to them. And they sort of come up with, well, everyone would be nice to everyone else. And there's one guy among them who's a psychopath, uh, one of the revolutionaries, the resistance, and who, when he can't shoot people, shoots cats for amusement. And I, I thought the novel was excellent for its style because of its moral neutrality, uh, really very well written indeed. I wasn't a great admirer of some of his later writings, which are corrupted by musings, though there are some very funny parts. There's one about a guy who runs a vanity press, and he gets all sorts of people who want to publish with him, but he turns some down. And there's one novel that he turns down, which is from New Zealand. And he says, I much admired the atmosphere of fantasy. Well, the novel is about splinter groups of Trotskyites in New Zealand. And <laughs> I, I doubt the author much much appreciated being told that there are elements of fantasy now, in Jim, it. Jim, we are going to jump to Scandinavia, and this time Norway, uh, with an author called Jo Nesbo. Now, his work, Nesbo's work, has been translated into over 40 languages, selling 23 million copies. Our producer is a big fan. We've got about three fans at RNZ. But you hate him. No, I didn't hate him. I just didn't think he was as good as, was it Stieg Larsson, uh, who wrote, you know, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He seemed to me, the, the character seemed to me often awfully stereotyped. That is, I didn't have much resonance with the characters that he invented. But The Red Breast was voted the best Norwegian crime novel ever. Well, some people expect of a crime novel less than they do of other novels. Uh, I didn't think the characters in that novel rang true particularly at all. There's this sort of banter between them, you know, where he's sitting in his office and his female assistant is there and he loosens his tie and she says, more, more you know, wanting him to have a strip tease. And I thought, OK. <laughs> you know, I, I the can... studio's cracking up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't believe what you're saying, Jim. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> as a crime writer, he's worth reading oh, if you want to read someone on a, on do a you, plane. Do you, think crime, do you think that crime writing Not is a step below? Not necessarily. I think Dashiell Hammett wrote some wonderful crime novels. And uh, I compliment Barbara Vine on some of her crime novels. And one of the Irish writers writes some crime novels. I think I can't remember whether it's Barry or Banville. I think it's Banville. He writes under a pseudonym. So I don't look at that as a worse genre. I just thought that Nesbro, and uh, of course there's a theme in it. Virtually every man is either a woman molester or a sadist in some of his work. Though that's true of Stig Larsson, too. Okay, well, talk, let's talk about Stig Larsson. Again, uh, uh, he actually he died in 2004, <laughs> yes, didn't he? And uh, he, is, he has become a massive name. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, and you say that this book makes a reasonable first impression thanks that's to right. the development of one of the two main characters, a journalist, Mikhail Blomkist, in greater depth than the case is the usual then of the usual pop novel. So what do you make of this writer? 
I thought that that was his best, and the subsequent novels, he wrote it was it a trilogy, didn't he? And the woman, you know, later on becomes a superwoman. She can beat up any man, you know, with her hand tied behind her back, six of them if she needs to be. And the only one who masters her is a man who can't feel pain, and she's no match for him because whatever she does to him, he can't feel pain. He's sort of like Captain Marvel. <laughs> and... uh uh, I thought the the series degenerated after the girl with the dragon tattoo. I, I mean, it was a good, good novel, and the rest of the series. And Blumquist becomes a man irresistible to women. No woman who is subjected to Blumquist can not fall under his spell. So I'd read the the, the girl with the dragon tattoo and see how much you like it before I tried the. I others. haven't read it. Yes, it's worth reading. But I, I think you do get a, a you, you expect the other two to be really pretty good, mm. and the characters deteriorate and the incidents deteriorate thereafter. There is another writer uh, who has been described as the Titan or one of two Titans who dominate current literature. That's what the New Yorker said. Uh, people rave about this man, Jim Carl Nelsgaard. Yeah. What do you think? Well, he went from writing bad novels to writing bad autobiography. That is, I could see why he gave up on his novels, because I've read them and they aren't worth much. But uh, he began to write, he made his name with the autobiography, uh, these volumes. They have two defects in it. There are a few good passages. He can write on occasion. I've heard he is the master of the ordinary. He'll describe a situation or cleaning your teeth or getting up and making up. But he is the master of that, Jim. Well, uh, if you feel that it's mastery to say, I came home, I took off my clothes, I saw the shower in the corner, I stepped (laughs) in the shower, there was no soap in the soap dish, (laughs) so I got some soap. I then took a shower... I then, you know, dried my hair, if that really appeals to you. It sounds like genius. It may be sound like genius, but you get quite enough of it before you get through all of it. And further, there are endless, vapid essays on every subject under the sun. As I say, Dostoevsky was a highly brilliant man as well as a, a good writer. And he could write essays or take Victor Hugo on Les Miserables. There, there's wonderful essays on the Battle of Waterloo and on the life of the convent in 19th century France. These essays are the sort of things that an adolescent would put in his diary. Oh, my. So they're just the, awful stuff. So is this the case, then, of um, New York literary criticism gone mad? I don't know where they find these critics. Uh, half the books that are pretty good are hailed to be Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Uh, sometimes they get novelists to write these, and I often wonder if the novelist has the same publisher as the as the book being published. <laughs> you, you know, he had a vested interest in pepping it up. But okay, the, the stuff on Nosgard is just incredible. He's said to be one of the three people worth writing in our generation. Huge. Yes, and I, if I were you, I would try the first one and see if you can okay, stomach it. Okay, okay, I'll try it. Yeah. Now, the other titan, uh, apparently, is Elena Ferrante. She's uh, good. The, the, the third Italian novel, novelist nominated as the successor to Calvino. Uh, what's Elena's work like? I haven't read. She wrote an early novel that attracted my attention before the novels that have made her famous, and that's Days of Abandonment. And it's about a woman of 38 with two children 
whose husband leaves her for a 20-year-old blonde with whom she's been having an affair for five years. Somehow this enrages her. And the novel is a nightmare that lasts 180 pages about her husband, the situation, uh, her ability to recover from this. It's an excellent piece of work. The Neapolitan novels are the ones that have made her name. It's about two girls from a Naples slum. And some of the uh, incidents are very arresting. She wants to portray what the slum was like. And she says, the women were as angry as starving dogs. Uh, You have a filled with violence of language and violence of behavior. I enjoyed reading the four. I'm not sure how this would carry over if she got on to any other theme. Her style is electric. It's not a polished style, but it has many electric images in it. For example, an estranged woman meets her grandfather on the street and hopes for reconciliation. And she greets him, you know, with her son in tow. And he addresses the child, and he says, if you see your mother, tell her she is a whore. Uh, You know, some of the language is well chosen to convey the awfulness of their circumstances. But uh, we'll see what she can do on other themes. There's another uh, woman who has... And by the way, there's only two women featured in this chapter in Europe. Was that just a case of unconscious bias or, 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 or what? A number of what in this chapter? case of unconscious bias. There's only, there's only two women featured in this uh, whole of Europe. Well, I'm not sure if that's true. I know there are a lot more featured in the book. That is, there uh, aside from Ferranti, of course, there are others that I discuss. Uh, it's mainly just who people told me were writers they enjoyed. If they'd told me the writers they enjoyed were women, that would have been fine. I should say that I did discover one thing that I didn't expect to discover, and that is Sandor Marai, the Hungarian novelist who wrote in the mid-century but was only translated recently. And he is a stylist almost on the, the level of Ishiguro. Unfortunately, sometimes he becomes drunk with his style, and he doesn't care much what he's lavishing it on. But Embers is a wonderful book about a love triangle that a general is remembering after retirement. And it has a vivid portrayal of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example, the romantic suicide of a 12-year-old for reasons no one could possibly imagine today. But he also wrote Portraits of a Marriage. And ah, yes. It, yes. Book, yes. And the, the one Embers is about the nobility, who have nothing to do now that the empire is over. But Embers takes the life of the bourgeoisie and the peasants, and Peter hates the life he's been raised in, the delicate, decadent, stuffy, superior, hopeless, cold conspiracy that kills joy. And his wife and he are regulated to the point of insanity. They dress for breakfast as if for a wedding. Sandor Murai, Hungarian. Wonderful, uh, wonderful writer. All right, recommended. I've got to read it. Now, uh, next episode, the books of New Zealand and Australia and our own Booker Prize winners, The Luminaries and the Bone People. Which one is in? And which one isn't? The new Torchlight List with Professor Jim Flynn scouring the globe looking for the pearls by today's authors with me, Wallace Chapman. (laughs) 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.